listening to First Church Charlotte. Turn with me, Jeremiah chapter number 32, if you would meet me in the scripture there in uh, the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah. I am going to read from a short passage. I will explain it more later. There is a narrative here. There is a story, an underlying story, which we will not have time to read the whole of, but I will try to give you the Cliff Notes version in just a little while. So let's start at verse number uh, three. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him, Jeremiah, shut Jeremiah up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah, the king of Judah, shall not escape from the hands of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. In other words, the king is irritated at the subject matter of the preacher now. (laughs) Verse number 6, Jeremiah explains, Look, guys, I didn't make this up. I wasn't just writing a novel. I'm speaking what the Lord said to me. And I not only preached this, but I did something that is symbolic. Somebody say symbolic. And you can read that here in verse number, uh, verse number, let's see, verse number nine. So I bought the field from Hannah Mill, the son of my uncle, who was in Anoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. And I signed the deed. Somebody say, I signed the deed. I signed the deed. I sealed the deed. I took witnesses. I weighed the money on a scale. I did it right. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and the custom and that which was open. And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Masiah, in the presence of Hanamuel, <laughs> my uncle's son, and in the presence of witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. And then I charged Baruch before them saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this purchase deed, which is sealed, and this deed, which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel. Somebody say an earthen vessel. That they may last for many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall shall be possessed again in this land. So today I'm going to preach with this subject. Um, This is a quote from uh, the great American civil rights leader and statesman that we are celebrating nationally this weekend. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has a quite famous quote that I love. And so with apologies to him, I'm going to use it as a sermon title today. And that is this. We all came on different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. We came on different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. Before you're seated, touch your neighbor and say that to him. We came on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. What an honor to teach the word of the Lord to you today. I thank you for that opportunity. I thank you for taking some of your time to listen. Uh, We are, as a nation, celebrating this weekend some of our cultural heritage that comes out of a quite painful American experience, and that is the rise from the great social evil of slavery, which has particular uh, pain in American history. From that uh, to a state uh, where there was two separants, two two separate systems, really, uh, a, a living injustice of sorts, and 
through the pioneers of the civil rights movement, uh, there was a correction in the justice of America where we finally got closer to that uh, declarative, declarative intent that was originally uh, inscribed in the Declaration of Independence that all men were created equal and that all men and women, of course, possessed certain unalienable rights that were given to them by, by God. And through the gift, and I use that word intentionally, the gift of uh, men who led this civil rights uh, movement and women uh, who led this civil rights movement, it wasn't just men. Uh, there was a, a correction somewhat in the injustice of, of, of the time. And every generation has its own challenge of weighing justice and seeking to get it right. All of the efforts in the American story of justice are not done, and we will continue in every venue of American life try to sort things out. And I'm thankful, however, is uh, if, if you'll allow me to say it this way, that uh, men such as Dr. Martin Luther King are, are a part, first of all, of the African-American heritage that is in America. But more than that, his gift is to the world. His gift is, is to the larger story of justice within humanity. And so we are thankful, we are thankful uh, to celebrate with all of the nation uh, on this weekend in that regard. And in honor of that, I wanted to read some of his words and have you consider them. Uh, I want to say that Dr. Martin Luther King, more than being a courageous man, uh, more than being a figurehead of no small uh, prominence in the story of American justice, he, he was a genius of communication, truly a genius. I'm, I'm not using that just easily. Uh, he had a gift to make uh, complicated ideas uh, simple and straightforward in a manner that you would immediately get. Now, we can all of us feel many things, but all of us cannot put those feelings in words. And sometimes when someone comes along and they can put it in words, it's just like, boom, it's like, yes, that's, that's what I wish I could have thought of to say. Well, to be fair, uh, as a preacher, every time I read any of the speeches of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I think to myself, I, I wish I had, I wish I was smart enough to say that. <laughs> Let me read uh, some of his words from his speech, Where Do We Go From Here, which was delivered at the 11th annual SCLC convention in Atlanta, Georgia in August 1967. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says this, I'm concerned about a better world. I'm concerned about justice. I'm concerned about brotherhood and sisterhood. I'm concerned about truth. And when one is concerned about that, he can never advocate violence. For through violence, you may murder a murderer, but you cannot murder murder. Through violence, you may murder a liar, but you can't establish truth. Through violence, you may murder a hater, but you can't murder hate through violence. Darkness cannot put out darkness. Only light can do that. Isn't that awesome? He continues, and I say to you, I love this. I get chills when I read this. I say to you, I have also decided to stick with love. For I know that love is ultimately the only answer to humankind's problems. And I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I know it isn't popular to talk about in some circles today. And I'm not talking about emotional bosh where I talk, when I talk about love. I'm talking about strong, demanding love. For I have seen too much hate. And I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I've decided to love. If you're seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And the, most, and the beautiful thing is that we aren't moving wrong when we do it. Because John was right. God is love. He who hates does not know God. But he who loves has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. Good stuff. He then goes on to quote the great 
chapter on charity from the word of the Lord. But Dr. King does it and puts it in the, 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 the quotation, he puts it in modern vernacular to this speech at this place of higher learning. He says, I say to you today, my friends, that you may be able to speak with the tongues of men and angels. You may have the eloquence of articulate speech, but if you have not love, it means nothing. You may have the gift of prophecy. You may have the gift of scientific prediction and understand the behavior of molecules. You may break into the storehouse of nature and bring forth many new insights. Yes, you may ascend to the heights of academic achievement so that you have all knowledge and you may boast of your great institutions of learning and the boundless extent of your degrees. But if you have not love, all of these mean absolutely nothing. What are you doing, Dr. King? He's quoting that great chapter from the Word of God, which is a declaration of intent and purpose for every Christian believer. It's not just the what, it's the how. Are you hearing me when I say that today? It matters how God's people bring about God's truth. It's not enough to do it at any cost. It's not enough to win at any cost. If we win through the arm of the flesh, we will have done the same thing that the Roman Empire did in the name of Christianity and then went on to kill people in a genocidal outpouring of rage and, and, and prosecute people with torture, with fire, with sword, every terrible error, excess that is a part of the story of religious history is all perpetrated by individuals who don't care how they do it. They want to win and they'll win at any price. The church cannot have that attitude. The manner in which we carry ourselves is the proof of the claim we make to the world. We can say love, 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 but if we don't show love, our witness falls to the ground and is lost upon it. We can say give, 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 but if we ourselves don't give, we can say accept and receive and embrace, but if we ourselves don't accept and receive and embrace, hear me today, we will have destroyed the very witness we claim to have made through the so-called life-changing power of the Holy Ghost. Hear me today. Even when you're wrong in the sense of winning or losing, you didn't win the argument. You can still be a testimony if you did it the right way. Even Even when they kill you, you can still be a testimony if you die the right way. It matters how the church carries ourselves. The church cannot win through the arm of the flesh. We cannot win through some totalitarian religious expression. We cannot try to force and control and coerce and manipulate. We have to present love and say to a world that's filled with hate, we're not going to win with more hate. We're not going to win with more anger. We're not going to win with more rage for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We must win through love or we lose. The church must progress through love or the church does not progress. As an individual, your testimony must manifest the love you claim to have changed your life or your testimony is more of the same. A manipulative, totalitarian effort that is given a religious label and then foisted upon a world that has learned to protect itself against manipulation. But when the church shows forth the love of God, it never fails. When the church shows forth the care of God's affection for his creation, it never fails. Win or lose, it never fails. You can crucify the truth. You can beat the truth with a scourge. You can put a crown of thorns on the truth's head. And you can suspend the truth between heaven and hell. You can even let the truth die, but you can't kill the truth. Because on the third day, it's coming up out of that grave. It matters how our church progresses. It matters how we operate. It matters the culture that people feel. It must have that overwhelming sense of love or we have failed to operate by the how. We don't disagree about the why and we don't disagree about the what. But there comes to be tension when we get to the how. 
It's possible to have all the words of prophecy, but be doing it wrong, and your efforts will fall to the ground. It's possible to understand all mysteries. Imagine understanding all mysteries, but if you don't have love, it will fall to the ground. Imagine having all power. Imagine having all miraculous ability. If it is not founded upon love, it will fall to the ground. How the church doesn't matters. Now that we've established that, and I've suited, suitably in a pastoral manner repeated myself right to the edge of your patience, I'm going to move along. In this story that we read together, you see the children of Israel at one of the darkest moments of their, their history. Uh, they have been, how shall we say, they have failed in God's intent for their covenant. They have missed the point. And the Lord has sent them prophet after prophet to correct, to guide, to rebuke. And they, rather than receiving, rather than humbling themselves, they instead kill the prophets that God has sent. And this will will, of course, be this repetitive story, quite like the absurd repetitions that's in human nature, where we do the same things and expect different outcomes, this repetitive uh, failure on their part where they will not receive and they will not humble and they will not be changed. And the Lord gets to the point where he is disgusted by their um, religious choices and he's disgusted by what they've made of his call upon their life. They have turned his purpose into their purpose. Now, uh, without getting too deep into the story, we get to a place in the scripture where God's basically saying, look, uh, your world created by your choices comes with consequences. And because you have made these choices, you will pay the consequences of these choices. This is free will. This is sovereignty. We need to all of us understand that or we'll never understand the problem of evil. And you need to understand the problem of evil. You are not a pet kept against your will. You are a creator made in the image of God. And you, all of us, every day, by your choices create a world and then you live with the consequences of that world. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. You are not a pet. You are not a domesticated animal. If you were, there can be no love story. Love can only exist if you're free to walk away. Love can only exist if you're free to say, I'm not going to give my heart to you. And so we have the consequences of judgment following choices. And so judgment has come upon the children of Israel. Babylon has descended from its mountainous fortresses and crossed the, uh, the plains of the Holy Land and has arrived at the doorstep of the city. And there the armies of Babylon are surrounding the city and the people inside are preparing to, for a siege. They're preparing for battle. And there's this big problem. The preacher turns into this treasonous-sounding, borderline quasi-traitor because rather than preaching what we thought we needed him to preach, which is uh, the Lord's going to kill the enemy and give us victory, he's preaching uh, the exact same thing that all the other prophets who warned us about what would happen is preaching. And that is this. Judgment's coming. No free lunch. You chose this, and with these choices comes the consequences, the fruit of that, those choices. That, As a result, Babylon is going to overtake this city, and uh, the walls are coming down. The city is going to be destroyed. Our king is going to be hauled off as a trophy to be marched in front of the king of Babylon, and uh, that's the way it is. Well, you can imagine this is aiding and abetting the enemy. No king is going to put up with that, uh, at least to the king's credit. He doesn't have Jeremiah killed. I'm sure he was tempted, <laughs> but he doesn't have him killed. He simply has him thrown in prison, and then he goes to talk to him. Now, why in the world, Brother Prophet, Mr. Preacher, why in the world would you preach so dour and depressing a sermon? Don't you know what people need? Aren't you sensitive to the needs of the people? Why aren't you helping us? The way I see it, Mr. Preacher, Brother Prophet, you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. And Jeremiah, he's like, look guys, I didn't do this because I woke up in a bad mood. It's not like I woke up, tested them in and said, hey y'all, let's, let's go cause trouble. Let's go forth and cause drama. Let's cause mayhem. No, I did it because God told me to do it. Yeah. 
I pray in your life you have spiritual leaders who will follow the voice of the Lord rather than simply trying to figure out what they think you need. I might think one and think two and think three, but God knows what you need. I might wish this or hope that or desire the other, but God knows what you need. And if it comes down to choosing, I pray that all of us can choose choose the voice of God over every other voice in our life. It's the voice of God that brings hope. So... Jeremiah says, look guys, I, I, I did it because God told me to do it. Because God has a message. Now, I want to remind you of the power of symbolism. If you don't understand symbolism in the scripture, you're going to miss a lot. Because the Lord teaches us about things we cannot understand. That stuff we're trying to see through a dark glass into. The stuff that is not of this world. The stuff that is of the kingdom of heaven. That's difficult for us. How does he teach us about it? He teaches us about it by the symbols of things we do understand. In the New Testament gospel, we will call this a parable. The kingdom of heaven is very large, difficult to understand, but the Lord will explain it in simple symbols that we can understand. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who went on a far country and left his stewards in charge of his uh, uh, assets. He's going to teach you what is difficult to understand by the manner and the tool of something you can understand. Here comes the symbolism of what Jesus is trying, not Jesus, but God, (laughs) well, Jesus, but you get the idea. (laughs) God is trying to show the children of Israel through the ministry of Jeremiah. This is the message. Babylon's coming. The city's going to be destroyed. Everyone's going to be uh, in, in, in the same circumstance. Everyone's going to be carried off. There's going to be great trouble and great sorrow. The king himself is not going to be able to hide from it, and he's going to be carried off too. But God told me about a piece of land that was here, and he told me to buy it. Somebody say, huh? Thank you much. I appreciate that. That's the first honest statement I've got out of some of you here today. (laughs) Just having fun. Just having fun. I want you to buy this land. I want you to buy it. I want you to publicly buy it. Note the effort that Jeremiah goes to. He says, I didn't just buy it. I didn't just have my proxy go to their proxy and they take care of business. No, I did it publicly. I had them bring the money to the prison where they have me locked up. I had the money, uh, the banker, weigh out the money in front of the court of all the Gentiles, or the Jews. I had the deed recorded, not just for posterity and sealed as legal proof. I had it recorded again and left open so I can show anybody in this generation or the generation to come that God wants to make an investment right here, right now. What do you mean God wants to make an investment right here? right now. I wish you preachers would get your story straight. Y'all are confusing me. On one hand, you say the city's going to be destroyed. On one hand, you say even the king is going to fail to escape this judgment. On one hand, you say nothing but trouble and sorrow. And on the other hand, you say now would be a good time to make an investment. I wish you would make up your mind which one it is because everybody knows. If any of you have ever been to these real estate seminars that come through that teach you how to buy 40 rental houses and and, uh, turn them into uh, never having a free weekend again (laughs) and uh, make a million dollars. If that business model works for you, God bless you. Um, I'm already committed on the weekends, so (laughs) didn't work for me so well. And so... (laughs) Everybody knows, everybody knows the time to invest in a city that's about to be destroyed is not before it's destroyed. The time to buy is after it's destroyed. If you buy before it's destroyed, you have to pay full price. Somebody say full price. You have to pay full price if you buy before it's destroyed. If you buy before the trouble comes, you have to pay for all the improvements that are going to go up in smoke. You have to pay full price, but if you will wait until after and then make an investment, you can buy the whole city for pennies on the dollar. God says no. No, I want you to do it now. I want you to find the land. It is given to you and you have a right of birth to own it. Somebody say a right of birth. You have a right, you have a covenant right to own that land and 
Oh, hallelujah. Man, I wish I could preach today. And I want you to publicly buy it. Now that you've told everybody the whole place is going to be destroyed, I want you to publicly buy it. I want you to sign for it. I want you to seal it. And then I want you to take the evidence of that investment. Oh, hallelujah. And I want you to find an earthen vessel. And I want you to put that evidence of investment in an earthen vessel. And I want you to make sure it's a good one because he says it needs to last for a long time. This is not a short-term jump-in, jump-out type of commitment. This is not a now I'm in, now I'm out. Now I love you, now I don't. Now I'm on your side, now I'm not. This is a long-term commitment. And I want you to put it in an earthen vessel and I want you to seal it for every generation that comes to know I am committed to you. I want this generation to know, and I want the generation to come to know, I am committed to you. Yeah. Oh, man, if I was preaching at an excitable church that like that, I am committed to you. But, but God, it's never looked worse than it does right now. I just read the paper, God, and it's a mess. Nothing but trouble. That's why I had the preacher make a big investment today. Because I'm investing now. Oh, hear me today. Mm, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord. Hear me today. It is true that the world is a mess. It is true that the world is filled with hatred. There is more generational tension and there is more ideological tension. And because of the ease with which any individual can feel the media landscape with anger, rage, and hatred, it is a reality we're living in that tensions are bubbling very close to the top. And the angriest and the loudest and the most simple and the crudest are the people defining the culture of the day because of this crazy new reality that we're all learning to live with. There is no shortage of people willing to tear down. There is no shortage of people willing to be negative. There is no shortage of people willing to cause harm. There is no shortage of people willing to bake hate in a witch's brew of their own anger and their own rage. But in the middle of this mess, God has made a really big investment. And he wants you to know he's committed to you. I want you to know, and I want your children to know, and I want your grandchildren to know, and I want your great-grandchildren to know that I've made this big investment, and I have sealed it in sacred script, and I have placed it in an earthen vessel so that everybody everywhere all the time can know I am committed to the mess you're living in. Oh, hallelujah. Why, preacher, would you make an investment on the stead and at the direction of God at a time right before we're destroyed by the Babylonian Empire? Because I want you to know vineyards are going to be here again and houses are going to be here again and hope is going to live here again and children are going to play in the streets here again. I want to tell you something today. God's committed to you. I said God is committed to you. Your life might be a bit of a mess. Your life might be a bit of a, you know what, but I'm here to tell you, God is committed to you. It's not a short-term kind of commitment. It's not an end and then out and then maybe I will and maybe I won't and now I love you, now I don't. No, God made a commitment for you and he paid full price. I said he paid full price. He didn't try to buy you on the cheap. He didn't try to shoplift you out of the side door of justice. God paid full price for you. I'm here to tell you, God not only gave that which he loved most, 
which the only way we could ever understand it is to understand it in the somewhat difficult relationship of the Son of God, which is difficult for us to understand, Hood, which is why there's mystery in the Godhead that God could become flesh and walk among us, and yet the flesh was of God, but not God. And so the gospel writers, in an attempt to make sense of all this, try to describe it in relationships we can understand, and thus the terminology of the Father and the terminology of the Son is used so we can understand the price God paid for us. God didn't buy you on the cheap. God so loved you. He gave his only begotten Son that whosoever, 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 whosoever should not perish. But God didn't simply give you what he loves the most. He gave you that which he loves, if you'll allow me to say it. He didn't just give you himself. He gave you that which he loves the most. And to this world, he didn't just give his flesh, his son. He gave his bride. Oh, you didn't hear what I said, but I wish you would. He didn't just give himself, his flesh, his son. He gave his bride to the world. And the reason why the church is in the world is because we represent God's continuing commitment to this world. I'm not looking for a cheap deal. I'm not looking to buy these souls in some half dollar, some five cent on a dollar effort. I'm going to pay full price. I'm going to give myself and I'm going to give what I love the most and thus the church is in the world I said the church is in the world and hear me today if God's not given up on this world if God's investing this church is not given up on this world either If God's investing, this church is investing. If God's investing, this church is investing. But because we we become God's investment in this world. Hence, hence, this, oh man, oh man, this truth in earthen vessels. Now watch this. Paul, you may be seated. I know some of you are standing up hoping I'm almost done. I'm not almost done. I've got five mo minutes. Paul. Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Now, we talked about this last Sunday. I should have done a series, but I'm not organized. So that's how that works. Some people, they can hear the word of the Lord for the whole year. I'm struggling for Monday. I'm just being completely honest. I'm like, my God, what are we doing Monday? Uh, So... Corinth, problem church. I'm going to say problem church. Touch your neighbor, say, not talking about you. No, sorry, you don't have problems. Problem church, Corinth, mess. And so let me really quick just give you an overview. I'm going to need to do a series on this, but another time. So First uh, and Corinthians, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians. So in First Corinthians, the church is um, got this problem. Paul, Paul, Paul has taught them that they're not to judge outsiders. In fact, that's very clear in First Corinthians, not to judge outsiders. It's not the job of the church to judge the world. It's not. I'm sorry, you need to read 1 Corinthians. It's not the job of the church to judge the world. It's the job of the church to love the world, to reach the world, to represent light to the darkness of the world. But the judgment that comes is among us as people rise to prominence among us as Christians. And they are no longer recipients of the gospel, but they become the purveyor of the gospel. Then Paul says it matters how you do it. Seems like somebody was preaching about that about 15 minutes ago. I bet you that was a good preacher. It matters how you do it. It matters how you do it. And so you don't just get to do the gospel any way you want to. And you can make bring a shame to the gospel, Paul's point is. And in, the, and in Corinth, they were having certain types of shame that, that Paul deals with. One of them largely that we most famously talk about is, of course, the immorality that's talked about in First, first Corinthians. But Paul does more than just talk about the immorality of that situation. Um, Paul actually talks about... Uh, I got confused when I looked up at the screen. I can't be... 
having someone else give the word when I'm giving the word. It just confuses me. I'm just kidding. You're doing a great job. And so, uh, uh, what was I talking about? So, oh, Paul, he, he makes a list of things that people in the church ought to be uh, disciplined over. One of those things is immorality, public immorality that brings shames on the church. If you're a purveyor, now if you are a recipient of the gospel or you are growing in your abilities and you're walking forward, uh, that's fine. We are loving you and receiving you. But as you turn into a leader, now you become subject to the church discipline on how you carry the gospel. And Paul, I won't get into it right now for time's sake, uh, but Paul actually lists some things that'll get you disciplined by the church. One of them is immorality. Another one of them is uh, public drunkenness or a drunkenness, just period, or revelry. That's public drunkenness. And another thing he mentions is speaking harshly about other people. I've never heard of a church sitting anybody down for speaking harshly about other people. In fact, some of the harshest things I've ever heard have been in some pulpits. I thank God we're not like that around here. Uh, but it's uh, not, we're not supposed to talk harshly about people. That's Paul says you should church discipline those folks. So if you're talking harshly about people, you best watch it. I'm looking to make a public example before I fall off the platform. <laughs> and so <laughs> Paul gets him straightened out. And um, to their credit, they receive rebuke. That's somebody say good spirit. spirit. Now tap your neighbor and say, we're not talking about you. (laughs) Good spirit. Thank God for rebuke in our life. You know, humility is not walking around, you know, fake modesty talking to our friends. That's not humility. Oh, I'm just not worth nothing. We know that. Shut up. That's fake humility. Real humility is when you're challenged, can you some way receive and ask yourself, is there any truth in it? Is there any way that I can learn anything from it? That's real humility, but you have to live that, and that's much harder. And so, (laughs) so they do, good spirits. They get straightened out. And now, because they are the church of excess, They can't just do something. Whatever they do, they do to excess. If it is not getting, not exercising church discipline, they do that to excess. If it's exercising church discipline, they do that to excess. Now, Paul writes 2 Corinthians to them because they are so enforcing church discipline that people can't even repent. (laughs) They can't even repent. They're like, my God, I'm sorry. I won't do it again. They're like, get up out of here. I've been to churches like that too. <laughs> Paul says, whoa, whoa, hold it, trigger. <laughs> Slow your roll, calm down. People must repent and they must come back to faith. And when they do, you should forgive them. Amen. And you should not hold it against them. You should forgive them. And then Paul, in explaining all of this, says something that doesn't make sense unless you remember back to Jeremiah chapter number 32. You've got to go back to Jeremiah chapter 32. And here's a preacher saying, yep, things are bad. Judgment's coming. I don't see how any of us are getting out of this. It's the city's going to be destroyed. But on the stead of God, I want to make a big investment and show everybody who's about to go through tough time that I'm really committed here. I am all in. I am committed right here. In order to explain this, Paul will go back to this moment in scripture and he will write to this church of excess. This church that seems to do everything wrong twice before it gets it right. This church that goes over the top in every various direction. This church, Paul writes and says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We have this this treasure in earthen vessels. What are you talking about, Paul? Oh, do y'all remember Jeremiah when he said that God had told him to invest in the middle of the trouble and to seal the promise in an earthen vessel so it'll last a long time? I'm here to tell you guys, we are the promise, the earthen vessel, and in us is sealed the word of promise. And that promise is this. God's still committed to us. God hasn't given up on us. God has not forsaken us. But he is with us even until the end of the 
age. Let me tell you, the church represents God's commitment to this world. And if God's not given up on this world, the church can't give up on this world. I know times are ugly, but I'm here to tell you, if God's not given up on it, we're not giving up on it. As long as God's going to love, we're going to love. Hear me, every one of you who volunteer in a ministry of this church. You know who our model is going to be? It's going to be God himself, if at all possible. So if you have a small group and you go into that small meeting and you sit down with people you love and you pour your heart out with them and some days you feel like you're tired and you're the one who needs ministry and you pour out and you pour out and you pour out and you pour out. Or if you're a van driver... Where's my van drivers? I got one of my most faithful right here. I've got one of my most faithful right back there. Every Sunday, you'd like to sleep in too. You'd like to sit around and drink your coffee too. But you know what you do? You come to the house of God. You get in a cold van and you warm the thing up and you drive around the neighborhoods. You don't know people in those neighborhoods, but you pick people up and you bring them to the house of God and you give and you give and you give and you give. You know who your model is? The Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he wants to say. I'm not giving up around here. I'm committing. I'm committing. I'm giving. I'm investing. I'm paying full price. One of the most famous things that we like to quote, I'm almost done. We like to quote to each other is that beautiful passage where the Lord says, is anything too hard for God? How many of you like to quote that passage? I love to quote that passage. Well, do you know where that passage is found? (laughs) It's funny how that works out. Jeremiah chapter number 32. Isn't it awesome how a sermon just comes together? You write that down, Dewan. It works out well. Spiritual vineyards will grow again. Don't get me into New Testament. 
out of the chair you're standing in and just begin to make your way down to the front here today. Oh yes, as you come, would you just let your heart be focused upon God and His work in you and through you today. Oh, hallelujah. Lord, I thank you for your presence in this house. for love we pray for power why that's what we lust for if we prayed for love near as hard as we prayed for power we might have more power isn't it interesting that when God decided to fix this mess he didn't choose power he said love won't fail (laughs) love won't fail we need something sure love won't fail what a disappointment to the disciples when he didn't choose power They were totally hacked off. He chose love. You are the seal on an earthen vessel. God's word within and God's word without. That as ugly as this world is, we can't cocoon ourselves from it. We can't hide in our cloisters of of, of perfection. (laughs) No risk of that, right? We must go into a broken city and say, there shall be spiritual vineyards here again. There shall be spiritual houses here again. God's committed, so we're buying now. We're committing now. 
Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. So how do we do that? Let's be practical. We're so good at feeling. Sometimes we feel and then we go eat lunch. <laughs> Let's be practical. You want to show the love of God? Where do you start? Some of us pray every day, God, show me someone to show your love to. As though he's going to send us a first class envelope that says, Bob. Oh, thank you, Lord. Hey, Bob, how you doing? God loves you. You're not getting any first class mail. Sorry, that's not how it works. I have something much simpler for, than that in your life. You're surrounded by pain. Don't hide yourself from it. Run toward the pain and say, God's investing. Is that too abstract? <laughs> Is that too symbolic? Where's the pain in your family? Go to that pain. You're the evidence that God hasn't forsaken. There's pain in your neighborhood, pain in your community, pain in your world. Go to that pain. Don't wait for a first class letter and say, God's investing. I'm investing. Can I show love? Can I show God's love? That's where the miracles are at. On that edge where the desperate and the needy, remember the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are. The desperate and the needy are met with the visitation of God. That's where the miracles are. Lord Jesus, I pray for your people. I pray that we would live what we've been talking about. I pray that as a church, it would be fundamental to our church culture. I pray it would be who we have chosen to be. I pray it would be how we have chosen to live. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. I pray you would guide your people. I pray you would protect them from the enemy that is in the world only to kill, to steal, and destroy. Protect them from the evil one and let them be the living witnesses in earthen vessels that God so loved the world that he gave and he gave and he gave and he gave. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. If there's anyone here who you need, you need uh, prayer for a specific need, please don't rush away from this, this altar. Uh, we have we have ministry team that works down here. Find someone and have them join with you. Uh, let's believe God can bring about some change in your life and in your heart. If you haven't repented of your sins, don't slip away. This would be a great moment right now for you to take uh, a, a moment and make an altar of repentance to the Lord. If you're, if you're uh, new or you'd like to get to ask questions about the church or get to know anything about it, please consider coming to my First Steps class, which is next door, right across the parking lot. You'll see the sign. God bless you. We love you all. Walk this week in grace. Remember this week of prayer and fasting. We're going to have a great week with communion next Sunday. God bless you. You're dismissed in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come join us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road at the corner of Shamrock Drive. Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. and Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Online, find us at firstchurchclt.com or like us on Facebook or Twitter. We hope to see you soon. Come worship with us.